Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to this, wherever you are listening to this, this is Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Talk. My name is Greg Klein, and this is episode 9, 1982, a year of transition, and we'll look at it through the eyes of Nick Bockwinkle in his full career, and especially in Houston wrestling And it was a year of transition in that, obviously, the wrestling business would change in 1983, 1984, as at the end of this year, Vince McMahon Jr. takes over the WWF and turns it into WWE Sports Entertainment and conquers the old territory system, wins the old territory war. But in Houston wrestling, this is a really important year of transition and a little errors and omissions in that I finally figured out the when does Houston wrestling switch from Southwest to Mid-South. And it turns out that I think I was wrong and or I was wrong and other people were right. I was looking at the cards in the great Mark James book, which we will reference a lot today. And the cards don't really change in terms of talent until very late in the year. So looking at the cards, it seems clear that the Mid-South talent has taken over by November of 1982. But there's a really crucial detail that confirms what some other people have said, including Pete Burkles in his book, When Wrestling Was Wrestling, which we'll also talk about a little bit more today. And that is on the programs, as you can see in Mark James's book, which is Houston programs, 1982, 1983, and really captures this era perfectly, the year and a half of Southwest being the promotional partner with Paul Bosch and Houston Wrestling, and then the takeover of Mid-South, which in retrospect is the last six months of 1983. And the reason I figured it out for myself finally was I happened to get a really great program from 1985, and I'll share that down the road for a special edition. But On it, I noticed that it didn't have the normal golf athletic club name in the upper left-hand corner right underneath the wrestling program. And instead, it said the Best of Texas Wrestling, Inc. And so going through the Mark James book the other day, highlighting stuff from 1982 and Nick Bockwinkle in Houston in 1982 and reading all the fascinating you know, promotional backstory, promotional promotion about the AWA world champion coming to town and who he's defending against and who else wants a title shot against him. And, you know, I noticed that there is actually a date, obviously, in 1982 where the promotional tag changes on the programs. And that's halfway through the year. The last program to have the traditional golf athletic club is July 30th, 1982, headlined by Nick Bockwinkle versus Dick Slater. Um, And then the first match and program to have the new Best of Texas Wrestling Inc. mark on it 
is August 14th, which is again headlined by Nick Bockwinkle defending against Dick Slater. So that's the Southwest Booker at the time. There is a transition period where there's still a lot of Southwest wrestlers and a lot of Southwest matches and feuds. And then there's a blurring of the lines in that Bill Watts hires away a couple of Southwest talents, at least on a short-term basis. And I'm thinking about Chavo Guerrero and Gino Hernandez and Gino, it seems like washes out with Watts right away and then goes back to Southwest. But Chavo, well, Chavo doesn't stay much longer this time, but obviously is a part of the UWF days and comes back a couple of times with his brother, both as good guys and bad guys, both in Mid-South and in Houston itself. So it really is a year of transition, and we will get to all of that and look at Nick Bockwinkel's year as a whole as well. But first, let me say that Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Talk is sponsored by me, Greg Klein, and my published books, The King of New Orleans, appropriately enough, a wrestling book, the biography of Sylvester Ritter, a.k.a. the Junkyard Dog. And as I told you guys, there's been a lot of chatter about the Junkyard Dog lately in television circles. Did I not? I didn't say it that way before. I said it a different way. And now I've probably given two hints that tell you a lot. But anyway, um, I'm really looking forward to that. And it'll be whenever the next season is. And uh, so I can't wait to see what might happen. And I've heard some of the other titles as well. And I'm really jazzed and excited about some of the stories that I grew up with knowing as sort of legendary, um, but being now looked at more by those guys uh, that do that thing. So that's all I'll say about that. But the biography of the King of New Orleans is about not just Sylvester Ritter and not just the junkyard dog, but the story of how Mid-South Wrestling and Bill Watts and Ernie Ladd and Buck Robley and everybody associated with running that territory decided that the best thing for business would be to take a Black wrestler and make him the star of the show. And just how unheard of that was, how unlikely it seemed that it would happen in the deep, deep South in Mississippi and, you know, Southern Louisiana, Northern Louisiana. Arkansas and Oklahoma and Eastern and Southeastern Texas, but it actually was a genius move and it worked perfectly once <laughs> and then never again. And the guy that it worked with was Sylvester Ritter, who was really a man of his era, a civil rights, you know, fighter inadvertently, even as a student, as our friend Al Getz has uncovered and was a great wrestler, especially in the first half of his career, and then was a big star till the very end, died tragically, and probably did not have the career that he could have had. But, you know, it's one of those dark side sort of stories, if you know what I mean. Anyway, uh, I'm having fun. But also my first novel, The Paper Tigers, the untold true story about how eight guys from the streets of Philadelphia became professional baseball players for one day. And it's a story that I've lived with half my life and I just love. Uh, it's told in a fictional historic fiction form. And I hope someday will be a major motion picture that I get to play one of the characters, uh, Huey Jennings, the Tigers manager in. 
But it's a story about how Ty Cobb climbed into the stands and nearly killed a crippled fan. And when he gets suspended, his teammates improbably go out on strike in support of him. And so Huey Jennings has to go to the streets of Philadelphia and field a scab team. And he gets a bunch of college kids and a couple of grifters and a couple of his coaches. And he even takes an at-bat. And all they have to do that day is play the world champion Philadelphia A's. So it's a great story. It's a fun story. There's a little bit of, you know, the underdog in it as well. And I hope you guys will check it out. They're both available on Amazon. The King of New Orleans may even still be available in bookstores in the wrestling section. And if you happen to be in the Cooperstown area where I am, uh, they're all over town, uh, especially the Paper Tigers, since this is a baseball town. And I have some baseball stories to tell. I should tell that one end of episode rather than all my Lord living in Los Angeles, working in Beverly Hills at the Sharper Image stories. I should think of some good baseball stories. I have some Wade Boggs stories I can't tell. And that just like, that's crazy. But anyway, so that is the commercial for today. Uh, just please check out my books. I noticed somebody bought one last month, uh, a copy of the Paper Tigers. So thank you for that. Thank you guys for your support. And we'll do a little errors and omissions real quick. And it actually sets us up nicely for the rest of the hour, or maybe even a little over the hour, because there's just a lot to talk about here with Nick Bockwinkle. But a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about Nick Bockwinkel in 1981 and the Gold Cup. And one of my Facebook friends on the Houston Wrestling Paul Bosch tribute page, Benton McKinney, chimed in and answered two questions that I had regarding 70s, 80s wrestling and specifically the Gold Cup. So the Gold Cup was a three-day, 36-man tournament. He says matches were one fall with a 15-minute time limit. If matches ended at a draw, both were eliminated. If a match ended on a DQ, the winner advanced. Now, the exception to this, I think, is that after Bockwinkle and Wahoo go to a draw, maybe the judges ordered it back or something the next day, and then Bockwinkle wins. Maybe Benton will chime in again and give us a little more information. So there were 24 wrestlers, and so there were 12 winners on Friday and advanced and met 12 more wrestlers on Saturday. So maybe there were 36 wrestlers total. And then they says that the 12 winners on Saturday wrestled until a winner was declared. Now, I don't know, again, how Tito Santana gets involved in this. Um, the only further information that Benton gave on the tournament was that Dick Slater was DQ'd wrestling against Vern Gagne, who was injured. And so both of them were eliminated. And I think maybe what happens is there is no clear winner on Saturday. So on Sunday, a panel of judges is asked to pick who amongst the two-day tournament finalists stood out the most. And they come up with Bachwinkle and somehow parachute Tito Santana into the mix. And I don't know if Santana did wrestle a match and we just didn't see the results on cage match, I should look on wrestling data, which is what Al Getz uses, and start using that as a reference or cross-reference. But anyway, um, so I, I'm thinking maybe what Bachwinkle's protest about Tito Santana was awarded the match is not that he won the match on a judge's decision, 
but that he was placed in the match when the judges had to decide who to put in the finals. And, you know, Bachwinkle had earned his way in by winning out over Wahoo McDaniel in a two-day struggle. And other wrestlers probably would have qualified, but instead Santana gets in and I guess then pins Bachwinkle, presumably, and then, you know, pins him again in the rematch, which is for Santana's gold cup, not for the world title. And then as 1981 ends, December 27th, 1981 in Houston, Bachwinkle and Santana headline and go to a 60 minute draw for Bachwinkle's title. So that's how that year ended. And that does set us up perfectly for 1982. One other thing that Benton clarified for us is that the brass knuckles titles in this era were no disqualification taped fist matches. And that makes a lot of sense and then feeds right into the idea that they were tough guy titles, you know, sort of for guys that didn't need titles. So you weren't putting the main title on them. But you could always have them in a feud over who was the toughest guy, but, you know, just kind of call it the brass knuckles title. And that actually makes a lot of sense. And it does make sense why guys like Bruiser Brody and Bob Sweetan and Bill Watts later in his career and probably Buck Robley and people like that were involved in these feuds. Killer Carl Cox, I'm sure, fought over many uh, a brass knuckles title. I can remember, I think, a Rocky Johnson, Bruiser Brody brass knuckles title match that I've watched. Cause obviously I was watching a lot of Rocky Johnson stuff, uh, you know, after his passing. So thank you so much for that information, Benton. And also another hat tip to a Houston wrestling member and Facebook friend, David Johnson, who was the one, the lucky one that bought the Oladipo contracts after we had talked about it a couple of times and mentioned him as uh, Laddie the African Tiger and King Laddie and just his sort of unique status as a minor royalty figure in a far off Nigerian province, as well as a taxi cab driver in New York City and a former pro wrestler for what seems like a cup of coffee with Paul Bosch and Bill Watts, who we now know, or as we'll talk about in a moment, uh, were sort of co-running even the Houston promotion, as well as the Mid-South. Uh, David sent me a bunch of programs, copies of programs, including the one that he got rather than me on eBay. But um, so I was really grateful for that. And uh, as he said, like collectively, we're sort of piecing together this entire run of Houston wrestling. I have a bunch from the 50s and 60s now. And my love, I think, is the 70s. But I, I just got a couple from 1985, which obviously is my wheelhouse for watching. And you know, it was like I was a kid again, reliving these storylines and just experiencing the magic of what I now know to be Mid-South Wrestling, but obviously a lot of the old ones I have are the Dallas office. And also, you know, know to be Mid-South running a very different show in Houston than they're doing in their other markets, which is fascinating to me. I had assumed as a kid that it was Paul Bosch who was making it different. And obviously once upon a time he was, but in the mid South era, it's as much Bill Watts and, you know, the committee of Watts and Bosch and Pete Burkles and anybody else that's chiming in the booker, whether it's Bill Dundee or Ernie Ladd or otherwise at the time, Dick Slater, so on and so forth can man tell. So it's really been fascinating to sort of relive this history. And with that, 
we will jump into 1982. And we'll start with just a really quick rundown of Bachwinkle's 1982 at large, because I think there'll be a lot of time that we'll want to spend looking at the programs themselves, since we have a lot of source material from 1982. And not only that, I've watched probably half of Nick Bockwinkel's Houston matches in 1982, either through Crispy's Google Drive or just because they're up on YouTube themselves. I think that I think Bachwinkle has 12 full matches. He doesn't start till March of 1982, but he ends up squeezing in 12 matches that year. And I think I've seen half of them. So a lot to talk about. But first, we'll run through 1982. As we talked about, he ends 1981 after Christmas before New Year's with a one hour draw with Tito Santana in the Sam Houston Coliseum. Starts the year defending the AWA title back in the home territory against Greg Gagne, Jim Brunzel. Santana is still in the AWA, wrestling Bachwinkle some. Baron Von Raschke, clearly a babyface here. Uh, at the end of January, Bachwinkle goes to Japan for an all-Japan tour. Again, for his status, he is mostly winning you know, matches. Occasionally, he'll lose a tag team match to Baba and a partner. Occasionally, he'll have a double countout with somebody like Jumbo Saruta, but he's on top for his All Japan tours. He's not doing jobs. He's not putting, you know, other Americans of equal status over. He's not putting minor Japanese guys over or mid-card or up and coming. He's he's strictly at the Saruta Baba level of headliner at this time in Japan. And maybe that'll change a little bit over time, or maybe in the tag team tournaments when he's wrestling the funks or Baba and a partner or things like that with a partner that maybe is the guy who does takes the falls. But it seems like, you know, during these tours in the seventies and eighties, Bachwinkle is really a top star when he's in Japan. So back in the U S in the second week of February, more matches against Greg Gagne, matches against Hulk Hogan, matches against Tito Santana, a lot of matches against Santana, against Gagne. March 18th, he's defending against Pat Patterson in Oakland, which I always think is a notable thing. Um, we'll skip over the Houston matches, but there's great Houston matches starting in March, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um Teaming with Bobby Duncombe in a lot of tag team matches, losing to Hulk Hogan and Tito Santana in Green Bay in a steel cage in April, April 4. Interesting match. Um, losing a handicap match with Andre the Giant and Hogan against Duncombe, Heenan, Patera, and Bachwinkle back in Oakland the 11th of April. Another fun match. A lot of matches against Santana still in the early year. Uh, TV match against Kenny Sodbuster J. You remember him from the, wasn't he in the team challenge? That was how bad they had sunk during the team challenge was that Kenny J was one of the, one of the guys. I know lower card guys move up the card all the time. I don't mean to be mean to Kenny J who I'm sure, you know, spent a lot of time in the business, but that's sort of the end of the AWA story. So the end of April, Bachwinkle starts going back to Toronto for the year. He wrestles Angelo Mosca. 
Then a couple days later, wrestles and beats Jay Youngblood. Uh, he lost to Mosca by DQ. Uh, a couple matches against Hogan uh, to start May. A uh, week against Hogan, a couple matches against Santana. Uh, back to Houston, back to Toronto midway through May. And this time, Angelo Mosca and Jake Roberts beats Big John Studd and Nick Bockwinkle in one of the feature matches. More Ganya, more Santana, more Hogan. Okay, halfway through the year, Rick Martel starts to get a bunch of title matches. Hulk Hogan gets a bunch of title matches. Dick the Bruiser gets a match in Peoria, Illinois. I guess if it will play in Peoria. Also a 17-man battle royal that was won by Spike Huber. Hmm, I wonder if this was a co-promotion with anybody. All right, uh, let's see. Uh, Southwest, finally for a week, around the 4th of July, including a match in Houston, but also wrestling Scott Casey in San Antonio and losing by DQ, which is a unique thing against Scott Casey. Usually that's a, that's a win for Bachwinkle. Then after he goes to Houston and, and Southwest, there's a week in Calgary, starts with or includes a July 9th match where he beats Bret Hart by countout. A couple of nights later, beats Keith Hart in Hoberna. The other match was in Calgary. I think I said that already. We're just having a little page shift here. Let me uh, get down to the right spot. And then also interesting, a match against Mr. Hito in Saskatchewan and a match against David Schultz on TV in Montgomery, Alberta. And then a house show match in Calgary against Schultz. That was a Actually, a good stretch in Calgary for Bachwinkle in July. Back to the AWA with Hogan, Dick the Bruiser. Back to Southwest at the end of the month for a match against Bruiser Brody, which Bachwinkle wins by DQ. Another Houston match during that run. Out to Salt Lake City, where he and Heenan lose to Hogan in a handicap match. Let's see. Back to Houston for a match that we'll talk about in August. Uh, the one that we talked about, that's the first of Best of Texas Wrestling. During that stretch, he also does goes back to San Antonio for a match at the Hemisphere with special referee Lou Thez. And this time, Bruiser Brody beats Bachwinkle by disqualification. And then the next night, in what I assume is a border town, Bachwinkle loses to El Gran Apollo by disqualification. All of those are world title matches. And then the week after that, he's in Florida. I've only got one match, but I assume that there were more. And that's that Bachwinkle beats Sweet Brown Sugar in St. Petersburg on August 21st. And then back to the AWA and the title change that shocked the world, or at least two continents, maybe three continents if you throw in Japan. I think it kind of gave this guy a career in Japan as well. As in St. Paul, Minnesota, on August 29th, 1982, Otto Vons beats Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA heavyweight title. And Bockwinkle's second title reign is over. 
much, much shorter than his first title reign, which if you remember lasted like 1700 days and some change. This one, just about a year. And of course he was awarded the title and that was a head scratcher as well. I, I just watched a video about that where it is Stanley Blackburn and mean Gene Okerlund is just like scratching his head. It was a great video actually for all the, for all the hum and drum I throw on the AWA, they actually got that one right. And that it, they did at least use the decision as a promotional tool to play up that why is this guy getting the title back and why wasn't there a tournament? And Stanley Blackburn said it would take so long and the champion had so many obligations that he just had to be, they just had to pick a champion. And so it was interesting, but anyway, so now you go into this period for three weeks, really, I think it's like 23 days where Vons is champion and he's got a Ronnie Garvin like reign as champion. Although to his credit, he does, or to Vern's credit or Greg's credit, whoever's booking, he at least defended the title more than Ronnie Garvin did, which is my pet peeve with the way they booked Ronnie Garvin as champion. And why I don't think it was Ronnie Garvin's fault at all. Like, I just think it was booking. It was dusty. But that's another, that's a tangent that we'll do for another episode. But anyway, Vons only has about five title matches. And most of them are against Bachwinkle. Or maybe he has five against Bachwinkle. And then beyond that, there's like one against Ken Patera and one against Crusher Blackwell, but it's not a very long title reign, obviously. And most of his matches are losing or being on the losing half of tag teams or six mans or, you know, maybe even occasionally winning a six man or a tag team by DQ, but not a lot of, you know, not like a Carrie Von Eric three weeks where there's a lot of weird matches as he goes through the territories and assumes flair's contract and i'm thinking of like carrie von eric versus mike rotundo and i think maybe john mcadam went through those but that would be a fun one to do as well as well as tommy rich's you know five days as champion iron cheeks three weeks as champion maybe we'll do a show with some of those as we collect them but anyway so three wonderful weeks of Otto vons it's said that he paid fifty thousand dollars for the honor and it did make him in his, I mean, he was already a big star, had a territory, but I think it did make him in Japan to a greater extent and probably gave him a good shine back home to say that he was former world champion. And it does give you a little international prestige. And we'll see that again, obviously, as Bachwinkle's third title reign comes to an end. But they do make good use of this in Houston, and we'll get to that later as well. But the funny thing is, Bachwinkle wins the title back from Vons in Chicago on October 9th, 1982. And then the very next night, he's in Memphis, and he wins the AWA Southern Heavyweight title from Nick Bach, uh, from Jerry Lawler. And he's got Jimmy Hart as his manager, if I remember correctly. I watched one of those interviews as well, and it was really good. And so now he's a two title holder. And actually in the interview, he's challenging Ric Flair and saying that he wants to hold all three titles, but he's taunting Memphis and saying that Memphis is not going to get the title shot because it doesn't deserve the title shot. And if it were up to him, he would rather have it be someplace else like the West coast where he's from. And it was a great heel interview and uh, so that was a fun thing as well from Bachwinkle's touring in 1982. 
back to the AWA against Rick Martel. And then there's really like a three or four week run where he's in Memphis defending the Southern heavyweight title, presumably not the world heavyweight title against Jerry Lawler. And he wins on the 18th of October. Then he's in Winnipeg, fights Jim Brunzel. He's in Houston. We'll get to that a little later. And then the 25th back again, this time loses to Lawler by DQ. Then the next week, more matches against Brunzel, more handicap matches against Andre and Hogan. And then November 8th, finally, a month later, Jerry Lawler wins the Southern heavyweight title back, this time in a title versus hair no disqualification match. So Jerry put his hair up on the line, and that was a tip-off that he was going to actually win the Southern heavyweight title back, right? So then a couple of nights later in Winnipeg, Bachwinkle wrestles Andre the Giant for the AWA World Heavyweight title, loses by disqualification. A couple of nights after that, loses to Jim Brunzel by disqualification. A couple of nights after that, actually next night in Green Bay, loses or goes to a double countout with Rick Martel. A couple of wins over Baron Von Raschke. Back to Houston in a match that I really love that we'll talk about in a little while. And then back to the AWA, Chicago, a time limit draw with Santana, a couple of no contests with Martel, a couple of wins against Von Raschke, Santana, TV win against Nacho Barrera, and win against Brunzel as December starts. This time in Southwest against Jerry Lawler, and he gets a win. And I wonder, Lawler is playing a heel at this point against Bob Sweetan or had. So I wonder if Bachwinkle is the de facto face or if this is Jerry Lawler turning face before he leaves Southwest. I'm not 100% sure. Uh, same time, wrestling Martel at the end of the month, wrestling Santana. Match we'll talk about right after Christmas Day in Houston. Um, the next night back in Memphis. For another match, this time Lawler wins, but I think by DQ for the world heavyweight title the night after that in Oakland. So from Memphis, from Houston to Memphis to Oakland, that's a weekend for you. And he beats Santana by countout the night after that in San Antonio for TV. And he wrestles Mike Graham to a time limit draw. And I assume that there's also another Southwest match in there, either that night or the next night, the 30th, the possibly the 31st. And then 1983 starts for Nick Bockwinkle in San Francisco, California, with a world heavyweight title defense against who else but Pat Patterson. So that's quite a year for Nick Bockwinkle in 1982. And it's not even the best part because the best part is what he does in Houston that year. And we start off with a little visit from Atlanta and the Superstation. Friday, March 26th, as Bachwinkle defends the title against Tommy Rich. And actually, Bachwinkle wins by disqualification. And I believe what they say happens is that Gino Hernandez sticks his nose in and Tommy Rich goes crazy and gets disqualified. I think that's how they sell it because I think this leads to 
Tommy Rich and Gino Hernandez feud in Houston for a couple of shows. Unfortunately, that match is not widely available. But as I said, we do have the programs. So I'm going to read a little bit from the March 12th program. It says effort paid off. A hard, tenacious effort by promoter Paul Bosch paid off big dividends for Houston wrestling fans because the veteran matchmaker had to use all of his valuable experience to land the Tommy Rich and Nick Bockwinkle world title bout. Bosch was just one of many promoters negotiating for the Super Showdown. This match has captured the imagination of wrestling fans and officials all over the world and will take place here in Houston on Friday, March 26th. Many exclamation points. Now, Rich obviously is a huge star from being on cable TV and the Superstation. And Georgia wrestling has expanded into the Sheik's territory and is now Georgia slash Ohio slash West Virginia slash Michigan wrestling by this point with, with eyes on other places, if you really want to be honest, going into Western Pennsylvania a little bit and just feeling their oats. And because of that, Tommy Rich is a huge star. And really anybody who is a big star has figured out that they should appear on the Superstation. So that's why guys like Junkyard Dog and Dusty Rhodes and the world champions, Ric Flair and Harley Race, all flew in and made appearances from time to time. So that match ends inconclusively and leads to the next challenger, And this is a constant theme in 1982, as I tweeted. If you want to know who's booking Southwest at any given time, just see who is uh, unexpectedly a face and the champion of the promotion. And mostly that is Dick Slater. Occasionally that's Buck Robley. But in this case, it's Dick Slater. And so Dick Slater is stepping in for his friend Tommy Rich while Tommy Rich gets revenge on Gina Hernandez. And it may have even been that Dick Slater came and made the save for Tommy Rich in the March match. So Friday, April 16th, it's Slater versus Bockwinkle in a two out of three falls match. And Bockwinkle wins this one, two falls to one. And this one is available. It's a really good match. It's actually one of the better Dick Slater matches that I think I've ever seen not being the biggest Dick Slater fan. I say that, you know, with, with full respect to him for having really delivered in a big situation like this. And they actually keep this storyline going pretty well, even though they will in one match use the dusty finish. I think they kind of use it to a good effect and it's it's not so bad the way that they use it. And it's not overused like 20 different times on pay-per-view like Dusty did in 87, 88, 89-ish era. But in this match, Bachwinkle wins the final fall with a reverse roll-up. Slater had won his fall, I think the second fall, by a roll-up, and then Bachwinkle wins the final match uh, after a rolling reverse cradle where he tugs on the tights to roll Slater up, you know, roll him over, keep the rolling going and then holds the tights and gets the pin. I may have that wrong. I may Slater may actually win the first fall 
in this one. And then Bachwinkle gets revenge and wins the second fall or staves off losing and wins the second fall. But it was a good match. It was a really good match. And this leads to May 14th. And one of the pivotal cards in Houston wrestling history. And I'm going to paraphrase rather than read, but this comes from When Wrestling Was Wrestling by Peter Burkholz, Paul Bosch's nephew and one of the promoters in Houston wrestling in this era. And soon to be, as we'll find out, one of the partnership that becomes best of Texas Wrestling Inc. So at this point, Paul Bosch's wife is sick. I think she's fighting cancer. Paul Bosch is... I think in his 70s, he's been at this for 50 years, including being a wrestler. And he's just run down. The business has changed. There's something going on at the Coliseum every week where they could not get a date for a month from the April show to the May 14th show. And because Southwest was really hot at first, they thought that they had sort of figured everything out and maybe won the promotional war with Dallas. I saw a very interesting interview with Gary Hart where he disputes everything that I believe about Houston wrestling and Mid-South wrestling and to a lesser extent Southwest, but not really because I I was not, I mean, I loved Southwest and I did see it first, but, you know, not, not as big a fan, I guess you would say. And it peters out obviously pretty quickly, but, you know, business is, is not, sustaining the peak that Southwest had the first year of the new association. And now they can't get the Coliseum for a month. For some reason, they can't get a secondary venue. Maybe they're no longer working with the University of Houston or the Summit. You know, they only need the Summit for a big show, obviously, since it's twice the size. And so at this point, Pete Burkles says, and take that for what it's worth, he does kind of jumble the timeline of the McMahon takeover and change in wrestling and say that it's part of why they switched from Dallas to San Antonio, when obviously that part is not true. But so he says that he suggests that they switch from being a weekly territory to being a monthly, or I think they end up at every three weeks, perhaps. But Paul Bosch is not thrilled with this idea, but there's nothing they can do in the short term because they can't get another date till May 14th and they're going to have to do what they have to do. And so they decide to promote another big super show for May 14th and promote it for the full month and see what it's like to promote a show for several weeks at a time and change the rhythm of the formula. So that's what they do for this show. And I will read you the card, which. Pete Burkles says is a 12,000 fan sellout with 2,000 or so fans turned away at the door. Jim Duggan beats Ricky Morton in the opener. Scott Casey beats killer Tim Brooks. Billy Graham defeats Jimmy Golden. Bob Sweetan beats Ken Lucas. And then they all come back and presumably there was a lot of cross shenanigans because the eight-man tag team match was advertised ahead of time. And in the eight-man, Jimmy Golden, Ken Lucas, Ricky Morton, and Scott Casey beat 
Billy Graham, Bob Sweetan, Jim Duggan, and Killer Brooks. Then in the feature matches, Manny Fernandez and Wahoo McDaniel go to a double disqualification in 12 minutes. Wahoo McDaniel beats Tully Blanchard in a strap match in seven and a half minutes. Gino Hernandez beats Tommy Rich in a Texas death match. And then Junkyard Dog against Bockwinkle with Bobby Heenan. And this is a schmoz to set up a lot of the matches for the rest of the year. Some of you will no doubt have seen this one. This one is readily available both on the Crispy Lettuce Drive and on the YouTube under the NWA Classics banner or somebody else reposting it. And in this one, Dog wins the first fall. Bachwinkle wins the second fall. But it's not a... But we'll see later on in the year, there's more squashy matches that they have or more traditional junkyard dog matches that they have. But this is really like for everybody that says junkyard dog can't wrestle. And again, I I know it's Nick Bockwinkle. This is a really good match. And even if you just give Bockwinkle all the credit in the world, you say he led junkyard dog through or he walked junkyard dog through or he ran junkyard dog through a really good match. And they do a. In the second fall, which Bachwinkle wins, they do a spot off of a bear hug where Dog has Bachwinkle in the bear hug and he's trying to get him down and lean him down to pin his shoulders and Bachwinkle bridges out of it. And it's just a really inventive spot. And it's, you know, like old school wrestling spot. But it's also, I mean... Like it's Sylvester Ritter who people are like, oh, well, you know, he wasn't a very good worker. And it's like, you know what? In his prime, he he was better than people think as a worker. And I always have to remind people he was a decent high school wrestler. You know, the way that he got discovered was that he was having he was at a wrestling match or, you know, like a. a Sheriff's Department, you know, kind of promoted tough man wrestling contest and he was throwing people around because he had wrestling experience and he was a really good football player, a lineman. So, you know, linemen have really good skills as well. Foot skills, arm skills, hand eye coordination. So, you know, it wasn't that Sylvester Ritter couldn't work. He got drug addicted, quite frankly, and he got older and fatter and stopped working out and stopped caring and, you know, God bless him. But, you know, there was a point in the nineties where he started to care a little more and got back in better shape. And, you know, as Crispy says, there are some good matches on the Austin Idol promotion. He's actually trying, even though, you know, the promotion itself is kind of more comical than it is maybe good. But anyway, this was a really good match. And in the third fall, Dog is going to get the win and everybody's freaking out. The crowd is going crazy. And Bobby Heenan slaps the mat. Basically, like, Heenan is right outside of the pinfall and the referee's on the far side and both he and Heenan are slapping the mat. And the idea is that dog hears three and gets up and celebrates and the referee has only counted two. And so it's a little confusing, but then Heenan gets involved and he gets clobbered. And then there's a DQ and because of that, there's a DQ. And so it's inconclusive, but 
the crowd leaves knowing that the junkyard dog was going to win, you know, like he, he was about to win and then Bobby Heenan interfered. And so that will lead to the June matches. And we'll talk about that as well. So the, but the May 14th aftermath is that it was such a hot crowd. It was such a good crowd. Bachwinkle was so impressed what was going on. He and Paul Bosch had known each other most of Bachwinkle's life because Paul Bosch had wrestled Warren Bachwinkle when they were both in their 20s. And Nick was just, you know, a toddler, basically. And so they had had talks the last couple of years informally about would Bachwinkle like to buy into the Houston promotion? Would he like to take it over when Paul Bosch retires? So apparently, at the after party, the talks got more serious. The after party for the May 14th show. And the next morning at breakfast, and this is from When Wrestling Was Wrestling by Peter Burkles, Bachwinkle writes Paul Bosch a check for a 10% down on buying the promotion. So this is May 15th, 1982. However, in June, Bill Watts calls and he says, Paul, when are you going to retire and sell me the Houston promotion? And he requests a meeting and he, I think Meltzer has implied that he leverages the junkyard dog at this point. But again, we've always talked about, do we really know how important the junkyard dog was? to Mid-South getting Houston. Now I think we definitively at least know the timeline of Houston. And so if you say, was Junkyard Dog important in Watts getting Oklahoma and Arkansas, or would Watts have gotten them anyway? Probably the latter, because McGurk was going out of business. And, you know, Watts, whatever Watts had at the time was going to go into that territory, most likely. He did buy it from McGurk. I think out of the goodness of his heart, but in Houston, it's a main event between the junkyard dog and the, and Nick Bockwinkle that opens everybody's eyes to how good business is in Houston right now. And, you know, which is kind of funny when they're talking about Southwest, maybe petering out, but the idea is that it's junkyard dog. It's maybe not Gino. It's maybe not Tommy rich from the superstation. Maybe it's not the Southwest feuds, there is a lot of going comings and goings between the bookers in Southwest, as we know, from Buck to Dick to Tully to Wahoo to Buck to Dick to Tully to Wahoo. So whatever the reason, at this point, Bill Watts and Paul Bosch also come to an agreement about the idea of them switching to Mid-South Wrestling which obviously they'll do in another couple of months and to Bill Watts, essentially taking over the Houston promotion with Pete Burkle still running the office in Houston, the ticket office and doing the promotional stuff and running spot shows and Paul Bosch being still the announcer, things looking the same on TV, which is what fooled me, I guess, when I was a kid or thinking back on the stuff I saw when I was a kid. But them kind of co-promoting the office and, and the shows together and actually doing a really good job, especially up until the UWF era, of continuing the practice of making it these great big super shows 
where people are coming in from outside the territory and they're having special matches that are unique to Houston. That said, they come back. Oh, after the match, the quote unquote outcry from the storyline is that Junkyard Dog was robbed of the world heavyweight title. And so to satisfy the fans, the promotion gives him a crown and dubs him the king of Houston wrestling. So this is fairly famous in this era in that, you know, when Paul Bosch died and his estate sold off all the assets, one of the prizes was Junkyard Dog's crown, which was in Paul Bosch's office and would just be, you know, used when they needed it for angles there or whatever. And obviously it was left behind when Junkyard Dog left. So this leads to the rematch June 11th, not for Bachwinkle's world title, but for Junkyard Dog's crown and the title of the King of Houston Wrestling. And this is a match where if Bachwinkle wins, he gets the crown and the title. And if Dog wins, he gets five minutes with Bobby Heenan. Now, obviously, Dog wins. It's a little more of a squash. Not not the biggest squash between the two this year, let me tell you. But it's a little more of a squash. And so Dog wins, and he gets five minutes with Heenan, and he starts to beat up Heenan. But then, obviously, people get involved. And what happens is Bruiser Brody, of all people, comes and makes the save for the junkyard dog and so that was a little later than i thought brody was here i thought brody's walkout flame out whatever it was was with a match with jim duggan and you know and this was from bruce pritchard you know but and that he was after that they said he would never return but now i'm wondering if it's a match later with tim brooks and if that's the case does buck come back to southwest a third time I don't know that I want to watch those Southwest shows, to be honest with you, but I will because that's what I do and that's what I love. In any event, so after the aftermath of this match, they come back in July for a couple of matches right in a row, actually. Um, two matches in July. Uh, not against the junkyard dog. They go back as we'll see to Dick Slater in a moment, but first an unlikely title defense July 2nd against Ricky Morton. And I watched this match too. I have to say, I wanted it to be better than it was. It was not as crisp as I thought it was going to be. It was a good match and the fans were very into it. And I wonder you know, again, we don't think about it this way, but by the time the Rock and Roll Express gets to Houston, the fans have seen Ricky Morton as a headliner for a year, you know, with Ken Lucas as a tag team partner and even in an AWA world title match with Nick Bockwinkle. And we don't think of it this way, but Ken Lucas and Ricky Morton are a really good tag team and they're sort of the prototype for the Rock and Roll Express. Because Ken Lucas is a little less flashy and Ricky Morton is a year younger. So he's, you know, blonder and prettier than he was even in the Rock and Roll Express era. And 
he's, you know, they're wrestling all these tough guys, they're wrestling Tully and Gino and the grapplers and, and Ricky is selling and Lucas is getting the hot tag and he's the veteran and he's, you know, knows what he's doing. And the funny thing is he's a Pensacola guy, Pensacola guy, just like, um, Robert Gibson. So, you know, really, really a lot of similarities. And I don't think we give Lucas and Morton enough credit, but anyway, so good match between Ricky and Bachwinkle, but not like, I really wanted to be like a classic and I didn't, I just was lacking a little something. There was one woman that was really into Ricky Morton and the crowd was very into him, but Bachwinkle wins at the end. And one of the things that they did, it, it worked in the Slater match where they used the same sort of finish twice, but in this one, Morton sort of posts himself on the ropes slash turnbuckle twice. And that leads to Bachwinkle getting pins. And I thought that was a little repetitive. I wanted Bachwinkle to cheat a little bit more, but they, they put him over fairly cleanly based on Ricky Morton's mistakes. So three weeks later, July 30th, they come back with Dick Slater again. And this one is the dusty finish. Everybody thinks that Dick Slater has won the match and things go crazy. I think Slater goes crazy. It's possible Bruiser Brody is involved in the crazy making. And this is the send off. If, if everything went crazy at the end of this show, this was probably for good reason, because this was the last of Gulf Athletic Club, Paul Bosch being the sole owner promoter in Houston wrestling. Now, according to Pete Burkles, at first, Bachwinkle tries to stay with this agreement. And luckily enough for us, he sticks it out for 18 months. But what Pete Burkle says is that Bill Watts got a third of the company. Paul Bosch kept a third of the company. Nick Bachwinkle got 11% of the company. And Pete Burkles got 22% of the company. And, you know, in the classic Simpsons, who gets the last 1%? Well, we'll divide that up into three. Well, who gets that last 1%? So new partnership, new day. First card is the 14th of August and a rematch with Dick Slater and Bachwinkle and Bob Sweetan and Jerry Lawler underneath, by the way, as well as Junkyard Dog and Ernie Ladd against Hernandez and Tully Blanchard. That sounds like a really fun match, doesn't it? There's a lot of dynamic duo against, you know, partners incredible matches in this era in the Sam Houston Coliseum. And I bet those matches were a lot of fun. But this time, Bachwinkle finally defeats Dick Slater. And as we talked about, that's just like two weeks and a day before he loses the title to Otto Vons. But he does not stop making appearances in Houston, and they actually make good use of his time without the title in classic wrestling fashion, because what do they do? They bring him back against the Junkyard Dog, and this time it's like a, I want to say it's like a four or five minute match. It is it is like a TV style Mid-South. We brought in a big name heel like Bob Sweetan and he's getting a payday and we're squashing him with, you know, we're, we're putting him under the junkyard dog 
it is really like big thump and out this match. It is such a contrast to the May 14th match, which as, as I said, like is really, really a great wrestling match. Like the, and these matches are all, I think all three of them are available on either crispy's drive or on youtube so you can see just sort of how different they are the really nice wrestling match at the beginning of the series the five minutes with bobby heenan match in the middle and then this match which is just a squash match to set up next year's title defenses when bachwinkle gets the title back and Really, I mean, it is a good match, but the funny thing is they're back at the Coliseum a week later on August 1st, and this time Bachwinkle is in the opening match against Scott Casey. <laughs> Who do you call when you need a win for Bachwinkle? Cowboy Scott Casey, and I'm sure it was a really good match because I think I've seen them on TV a couple of times, and those were good matches as well. And as Bobby Eaton said, you know, I like to work with Scott Casey. He's a good worker. Probably with more of a Southern accent, he would have said that. But So a couple of weeks later, we pick up on a feud from last year, which had also gone to a inconclusive finish as Mr. USA, Tony Atlas, comes in and gets a title defense. And this is a one fall match for some reason and you know this is if you look at the undercard this can tell you why i was still confused about who was booking because the semi-main event is dick slater and gino hernandez for the southwest heavyweight title so it's still sort of this gray area of whose show is running and whose you know talent is being used on the card it's obviously not open warfare it's not until 1983 i believe that southwest starts running opposition in houston and you know has their famous world heavyweight title tournament in any event the october 22nd bachwinkle tony atlas match is also widely available and it is also fantastic i really like this match it's probably the best Tony Atlas match that I've ever seen. And again, I mean, Bachwinkle plays to Tony Atlas's strength. It's very much because of the finish, a lot of selling for Tony Atlas and putting him over and doing his moves. But there's a smoothness to this that you don't really expect from Tony Atlas. And again, I mean, you can credit that to Bachwinkle, you know, but I mean, in this year, he's just had really lights out matches with people that you wouldn't necessarily think he'd have lights out matches with including the junkyard dog and Dick Slater and Tony Atlas. And that's just looking at the Houston stuff. Bachwinkle wins when Atlas is on a great big roll. And then Bachwinkle sort of out of the blue gets him in a roll up close to the ropes, puts his feet on the ropes and gets a three count, a quick count. And this leads to a rematch that's on November 19th, 1982. This time, the undercard is Chavo and Gino, which maybe at this point they've moved to Mid-South, and Ted DiBiase defending the North American title against Dick Slater. So you can see the bleed in there, right? I mean, it's really starting to, like, 
it's it's starting to blur. And that's where I started to think that maybe, okay, it's a Mid-South show. But obviously, for a couple of months now, there's been a new partnership involved. And this time, Atlas wins by DQ. And that leads to the final match for Bachwinkle in Houston in 1982. The head scratcher. When you need a win, I guess, who do you call? And in this case, they had just brought Johnny Rich in. And not just to Houston, but he'll also have some matches in Mid-South for a season. Starts off with a few big wins. Gets kind of relegated to mid-card gets an upset win with Hacksaw Duggan as his tag team partner against the Rat Pack. And then, you know, ends his run sort of doing jobs to the big heels on his way out the door. But the day after Christmas, December 26th, I believe a Sunday that year, one fall and he wrestles Nick Bockwinkle and it's billed in the program. I didn't read as many programs as I thought I would, but I'll read this one. And it is, by the way, top of the card. The second match is Stagger Lee versus Kamala. The third match is Tony Atlas versus Hacksaw Duggan. The third match after, under that is Chava Guerrero versus Gino Hernandez. And then the tag team title match, Ted DiBiase and Matt Bourne against Tommy Pritchard and Tiger Conway Jr., which is still a little Southwest bleed at that point. But maybe Tiger Conway is coming in. At that point as well. Ray Candy is also on the card, interestingly enough. So here's what it says. AWA World Heavyweight Champion Nick Bockwinkle comes into tonight's world title showdown with Johnny Rich confident that the year of 1982 will end with him still being the champion of the world. Boy, is that an understatement. Bockwinkle has had some of his toughest world title defenses here in Houston, including one last March 26th where he almost lost the title to Tommy Wildfire Rich, the cousin of his opponent tonight, Johnny Rich. It will be interesting to see if Bachwinkle's famous manager, Bobby Heenan, will be here or if he will continue his boycott of the Texas wrestling Matt Wars. Johnny Rich has earned tonight's opportunity of a lifetime, and the capable Rich is ready to pull off the upset of the year. Well, probably not, but that's okay. Also, Dusty Rhodes is back, wrestling one of the grapplers. And actually, that's who Ray Candy wrestles as well, the other grappler. So that's how we end 1982 and what a pivotal year in wrestling, what a pivotal year in Houston wrestling and what an amazing year for Nick Bockwinkle as world champion, not just in the AWA as we talked about, but a, another top tour of Japan, a visit to Florida, a visit to Calgary and 12 matches in Houston, as well as a handful of really unique matches in San Antonio and other parts of the Southwest Territory. And then a great month in Memphis, winning the Southern Heavyweight title the day after he wins the AWA World Heavyweight title and wrestling for that for a month against Jerry Lawler as well. So thank you guys for tuning in. I think we went a few minutes over but this was a fun episode to do. And so far, the Nick Bockwinkle episodes have been, I think, the most downloaded on the direct download anyway. So I hope this one is a, a crowd favorite as well. Thank you guys for reaching out with information on Houston Wrestling for me. 
And thank you guys for listening. It's fun to build a little community here. And it's fun to have you guys as listeners and as friends and as fans of old school wrestling, just like me. So we will see you next month as we reach double digits. But this has been the 1982 Nick Bockwinkle edition of Greg Klein's Old School Wrestling Talk. I am Greg Klein, and I will talk to you soon.